One way to think about the career development side is strategy and in general, just moving up in your career. I would point to is have a heads up mindset. Be looking around, learning all around you to see. Don't just focus on your specific functional job. Nail that, you know, crush that, keep going. But look at and learn from the other functions and roles around you. That's gonna give you a more heads up perspective. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast. Here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Ladies and gents of Reveal, howdy, howdy, howdy. I'm liking that more and more, you know? It's not the welcome, welcome, welcome from John Oliver or even Dak Shepard, but it's got a good, you know, ring to it. Well, listeners of Reveal, today's episode is bringing to you a close personal friend, but less important that he's a friend of mine. No, he is the Senior Director of Go-To-Market Strategy, Operations, and Enablement at Gong. We are bringing the professor, Craig Hansen, talking to you today about the intersection of executing on operations alongside AI. You think, AI, come on, AI is the hype real. Should we be scared about it? Oh my God, is it going to take our jobs? Well, Craig is going to unpack the role of AI from an incredibly unique perspective. Having cut his teeth after graduating Stanford Business School in the world of PE and then VC, certainly something that we would love for him to unpack and demystify, he's then going to talk about, well, how does that then translate into both the interpretation of something like AI from the investor community to actually operate within the four walls of an organization? What is similar? What is different? In this episode, you're going to hear him share how are things being adapted and optimized, especially within the confines of a revenue organization, especially when AI seems to be so critical in this ever-changing market. I can't say enough things about Craig, largely because, God, he's just got this sultry voice that just lulls you into a tantalizing, dare I even say hypnotized state. He might as well be David Attenborough's replacement on planet Earth. No, we're talking about Planet Reveal. Ladies and gents, I've said too much. It's time to hear from the professor himself, Craig Hansen. DJ, spin that. The professor, Dr. Craig Hansen, welcome to Reveal. Oh, thanks so much, buddy. Oh, I love being here with you. This is great. I mean, we've known each other so well for so long. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. You it know, is... I always come with great ideas and back and forth and some pushback and challenge. Like, this is, this is always fun. I'm so excited we're going to do this. Whenever I talk, I sort of wonder, is this the time that Craig realizes I am so much dumber than him and he no longer wants to talk with me because I am bringing down the average? Craig, no way. No way. my God, it. I am humbled to be among just what is a different tier of intelligence and intellect with you. I do want to start because I alluded in the intro to your credentials and having spent numerous years in the venture capital space, particularly in the Bay Area, a hotbed for intelligence and innovation. Talk to us a little bit about in the years that you've been in VC and even since having then reemerged as an operator within a startup that you invested in. I mean, are the playbooks the same over the decade or so that you've been in this space? Or is it every 18 months? Are we throwing out what works to have to re-examine what's going to cut it 
to remain competitive and relevant for the next 18 months. Talk to us about those sort of transitional periods or if there are any elements within business that remain constant. Yeah, it is a great question. Look, I think the guiding North stars of what makes a great company, what makes a great team, what makes a great opportunity, whether that's from an investment standpoint or a company that you join, those, that North star remains the same. How you get there, how you fulfill that changes over time. The tools, capabilities, the environment that you're operating in, all those things change. You're still looking for core essential elements like a large growing or untapped new market that you can move into, a team that can get you there, a value proposition that's really a must-have, not a nice-to-have, a competitive advantage that's sustainable and clear and explainable and a model that works. You know, those are those core tenants and pillars you're always looking for. How you fulfill those and the environment you have to operate in to build that changes wildly. But you've seen some of the biggest, best companies out there. They get started in good times and bad times. In fact, a lot more of them end up being started in the bad times. Why? Because it's actually easier to be very laser focused on creating hardcore customer value and focus, assembling the right teams. You're not honestly distracted by a lot of the outside things like too much capital that you're flush with, or it's too hard to convince people to join on the ship. So some of those amazing, iconic companies like Google or others were started in tougher times. People forget. So there's opportunity there. You still guide toward that same North Star. I just feel every time you speak, it's as if I'm in the David Attenborough Planet Earth equivalent to, you know, Craig Hansen Planet Business. It's amazing. Well, Craig, I've heard that before, right? The, the, <laughs> that came up early on after I joined Gong. They're like, he sounds like David Attenborough. His voice just lulls the customers into everything that he's saying. So I, I feel like I should be talking about birds and, and dolphins. And maybe we'll do that at the end, but I think we're, we'll, we'll talk business for now. Give me one we'll second. I'm just gonna, you know, pour myself a cup of tea and light a fire for this next episode. <laughs> so Craig, talk just a little bit about VC because for folks who have, in my case, I'll speak for myself. I've never been on the investor side of the equation. I've always been on the business side. When I was running my own startup, I was soliciting an investment. And in those power dynamics, it feels very top-down. And to an operator or an entrepreneur, I think you're always sort of striving to achieve a level of security, intellect, success, to be welcomed in through those, you know, pearly white gates of venture capital to then from the top-down bestow upon those starving entrepreneurs the gift of investment. So you you made it. Congratulations. And something compelled you to want to, maybe it's occupy both realms of here we are in the world of entrepreneurship with mere mortals versus sort of the gods of VC. And maybe you toggle back and forth between the two. But I guess a question, this is a twofer. Can you demystify for us? Well, is the grass greener when you make it over there? And if in fact it is greener and you've been alleviated of all the pressures and anxieties and stressors of being an entrepreneur, why the actual F would you leave to come back to the grind of being a gone? The reality is there are attraction, there's compelling nature to both sides. And I think a lot of attention, probably too much attention gets put on the, the VC side. The operating side is really where you're building stuff, you're making stuff happen directly. Like you said, you get your hands dirty, you're building it brick by brick, it's harder work, but that's actually what builds those iconic 
companies. That's what builds the success case. It's on the operating side directly. So both sides have a play. You know, as you mentioned in the background, I've seen both sides, right? So I started out in M&A and private equity and then was a tech entrepreneur and then long time in, in venture capital and worked with three different firms, building those up, including the most recent one that I was co-founder and general partner of. And so I've seen that. I've worked with a lot of amazing, great companies that went on to become international leaders in their particular spaces. That gives you an amazing set of data points on what works and what doesn't, all those success cases across all those different data points. What you're not doing is you're not the one who's building it brick by brick. That's the allure, is the tangibility of joining on the operating side where you got to make stuff happen. You can come up with the strategy, but you've got to build it. You got to be accountable for the results and putting that through. And there's a certain amount of vigor and grit and satisfaction that comes from building that. So I had always thought that I may go back to the operating side, but it would have to be an extraordinary opportunity. As you know, in the investing space, I'd done a ton in B2B tech across a bunch of different areas in particular, a lot with AI technologies, a lot in GTM tech and sales tech. So I knew the space, I knew all the companies we had worked with some of those iconic companies early on. So I had a strong thesis on this space. And I always thought I may go back, but it would have to be one, an extraordinary company. And two, where I felt a strong hypothesis for where that market was going and the hypothesis of how that was gonna play out. And that's exactly what I saw with Gong that caused me to, to jump in all in with Gong. I had a thesis for how that whole space, which at the time sales tech was pretty collegial. It was great. Everybody was growing. Everybody was cooperating. I thought it was starting to see from all the customers I was working with, that was going to get a whole lot more complicated and messy. And that was going to, you're going to start to see different vendors competing, different arcing to win over their spaces. And then eventually try to leap in and become the platforms in that space. I thought that's going to get a lot harder, tougher, more challenging. But I do think Gong wins as the platform in that play has strong thesis on that. And so I'm all in, I want to be part of that story. And that was what compelled me to, to join, but it, it had to be that kind of extraordinary case. Amazing. We will come back to this idea, what feels to be just this critical mass consolidation momentum to achieve platform nirvana existence. So I want to parking lot that before we come back to that though, we've a few folks who are in a similar, we'll say, point in their career have fairly, you know, comparable or reminiscent pedigrees to you, Craig. And it's that within their job titles, they have some reference or some nod to strategy. And our listeners include everyone from C-suite executives who have achieved this high perch within their own respective organizations. We also have early and career sellers, people who are doing the noble, unsung hero work of SDRs and BDRs. And if you're listening out there, we hear you and we continue to commend all of the efforts you put forth day in and day out to serve the greater good of your organization. So we have both bookends from the highest of highs and again, to be you know respectful, the lowest of lows where people start their careers. And one of the things I want to do is you know, for folks that look on and say strategy, oh my God, you get to be at the war room. You're 
at the table, hatching the plan for how whatever company you're advising at the time, Craig, or whatever company you're working for, you get to set the course that that ship takes. And what could be more exciting or impactful? Well, the the long-winded sort of prelude to this is the question, which I want to ask, how do people who maybe don't have an M&A or a VC or a PE background or an MBA from an Ivy League, how do they eventually get to that cool, compelling, cutting edge, even bleeding edge nature of work? Because it sounds really sexy, but I do believe that it's pretty nebulous how you find yourself in roles like this, which are so coveted. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. One way to think about the career development side is strategy and in general, just moving up in your career. What's helpful to get you there? Two biggest things I would point to is one, really have a heads up mindset. Be looking around, learning all around you to see. Don't just focus on your specific functional job. Nail that, you know, crush that, keep going. But look at and learn from the other functions and roles around mm. you. That's going to give you a more heads up perspective. You know, say not only say you're in customer success or you're in sales. All right, how are we doing this? How are we doing our model? Great, optimize that. What are other companies doing? What are other best case examples? How are other people doing this better? What can I learn from those? Constantly be seeking to learn and grow and move into those ideas. You can incorporate those into what you're doing rather than just purely executing on your day-to-day -day role. That's one key area of always looking to, to level up what you're doing. And then your turn, second, you're turning those insights and those learnings and the ideas, honestly, not all of which would be great. You have to have a, an attitude that failure can be okay. It's okay to put forth different ideas and try different things, have that more entrepreneurial spirit in what you're doing, but take what you're doing and then try to build that into better ways of doing that, right? Strategy is a way of taking what's working and what's not working to build that into a better model, a better paradigm. It's like a lot of stuff that we're doing day to day, day we're working because we're on the front lines and say, we're working directly with customers. We're working directly with enabling our teams and you're working with sales and CS and all these areas. We have those direct touch points. We know exactly what's working and what's not because we see it every day. And you turn those insights into, okay, here's the resource, the positioning, the framing. This is how we can win in this market. This is turning into that strategy. It's just putting it into ideas and programs that make it scalable, make it much bigger and more impactful. And that's not a siloed function that's just purely residing in say a strategy group. That's something everybody can start building into and doing more. So I love your call out that wherever you are in the organization, wherever you want to aspire to. It's not just to get to strategy, but how do you get to higher and higher level functions for yourself and impact for your company? I think there is just this sense of, uh, I will go read the book on strategy, hand me the gospel, Craig. And once I read this cover to cover and I take the test, ergo, I can now speak strategy. And your perspective is refreshing in that there's an osmosis to absorbing and curiously ingesting strategy as it exists around you both directly in your current function and then even more broadly for those who have an insatiable curiosity to learn more, it's out there in front of them should they seize the opportunity to take it. And I think that that really rests on individuals to, especially early in their careers, capitalize on that. I, 
I got some great advice from one of our listeners who said, I want to leave episodes with the same volume of insights, but way more tactical blueprints for how to then go apply it as soon as the episode's over. So I'd say, Craig, for our listeners out there, are there any, although it's not going to, again, totally satisfy the process of becoming a strategist, are there any books, are there any sort of stories from companies you've watched that you think people should go ahead and read, they should go ahead and study, or can you even, to complement any of those artifacts, are there any stories you would offer, maybe even from a failure of yourself, where you're like, oh man, like here's something that I totally just crapped out on, but from that failure, here's what I learned. Anything you would offer for our listeners? I think there are lots of lists of recommendations of, of structured learning you can do around that. And those things help, and they unpack different ways to look at it yeah. and do it. But the impactful way for listeners across all their different types of functions and companies yeah. is look in and around that the world that you're in and where you can ex- expand into. Because the company that you're in, the companies around you, the people you're with and those around you are amazing learning examples you can start absorbing all the way through an earlier career. If things are going well, what are the drivers of those success? How could you magnify those? How could you scale those up even further? What are the ideas? You start thinking about that and developing those into ideas and programs, that's getting into that higher level thinking. If things aren't going well, things are hitting challenges, great, that's an amazing invitation to go learn from either others who have stumbled through some of those same swamps before or have figured it out, or even just recognizing the things that don't go well, the things that can go wrong, those are often the best learning experiences. And that's going to influence, say, how you break something to reinvent it or how you're able to build something at the next place that you're at. So a lot of the most iconic companies that have become these legendary leaders in their spaces, it's never a smooth path. You know, everyone looks at these amazing companies and they're like, oh, obviously they just hit upon this great idea and it was just like a smooth exponential graph all the way up. And it never is. Right. There are breaking points all along. And in fact, there's a pretty good case that in a lot of circumstances, you have to quote, unquote, break it to make it along the way. You have to push things to the limit where say, all right, our sales process didn't become scalable anymore. It wasn't efficient. We have to redesign how we're going to do this to make it to the next level of, of growth or our product development process or our core product architecture may have to redesign or rethink that. So a lot of these largest companies, there are instances like that where they had to reassess and recalibrate. They were forced to make those changes in order to reach that next level of growth. Any times in your own career where you can remember breaking something, or I think you even talked about kind of slogging through the swamp, anything come to mind? Yeah, a number of companies that I've, I've worked with out of respect for them, I don't want to share all the messy details of what they've gone through, but safe to say that any of these great companies that you admire now, they've gone through tough times. Like you've had to figure out those particular aspects. In a nutshell, AI guided selling can shift the sales paradigm from being product focused to becoming customer focused, just like Craig said. And by honing in on what the customer actually needs, offering them that personalized experience, well, businesses can enhance, here we go, customer satisfaction, drive up sales, and secure a competitive advantage. A recent study from McKinsey found that high-performing organizations that have adopted AI, ready, are three times as likely to report revenue gains greater than 10%. 
bananas. Am I right? As the sales landscape keeps changing, it's clear that making a customer-centered approach is part of your guided sales strategy. It's no longer just an option. It's essential. Essential for gaining customers, maintaining customers, and increasing revenue. All things that you're likely on the hook for. Well, let's get back to Craig to unpack this juicy topic a little more. Well, let's go back to the question that we had parking lotted. I don't think parking lotted is a verb, but we put in the parking lot. I'm going to restate that. Let's walk this back. All right, here we go again. Craig, let's go back to that question that we put in the parking lot pertaining to this critical mass moving towards platform. So we're hearing a lot of companies refer to themselves as platforms. That doesn't seem to be particularly earth shattering, but we just find more and more of this groundswell heading in that trajectory alongside what has to be an unavoidable buzz and hype with AI. This feels to be a very, you know, obvious trend. Talk to us about sort of where this emerged, where do things stand today? And as it pertains to AI, how should we be feeling about AI's role in this push towards platform? Yeah, absolutely. So two big market change vectors, and we'll talk about how there's a confluence between them or how they're influencing each other's. So one, the advent of AI has obviously been going on for a while. The more recent wave around generative AI has unleashed this rapid pace of innovation. It's one of those key inflection points like you only see occasionally in markets. It represents a pretty phenomenal disruption, and we're at the very early stages of that. But AI and unleashing the capabilities of AI within business has been something that has started before, where we've seen different waves of different technological innovations and how those played out. We've seen different markets that it's tackled and how that's played out. So we have aspects that we can learn from, and it gives us some sense of, okay, we're at this rapid pace of AI innovation, right? That's alluring and moving startups all the way up to the very largest iconic companies in tech and far outside of tech in, in all industries. But then where does it go from here, right? What is what do we do with that technology and the capabilities as that rapid pace of innovation continues? And the key that I would point to in looking at prior examples of tech is really now in this stage of the business applicability, again, as that tech innovation continues to rapidly evolve and we're gonna see significantly different capabilities available to all of us six months from now, 12 months from now, certainly a year and beyond. As that continues to evolve, the key in working in business and for those of us in, in sales isn't necessarily the tech itself. It's the pro business problem that you solve. The key isn't the AI tech itself. It's the business problem that you're solving for those customers mm -hmm. and prospects. They're not looking. Buyers don't go out. A CRO or other leaders don't go out and say, Today, I'm going to go buy some AI technology. You know what I need? I need AI technology. They're intrigued by it. They're curious about it. What they want is to solve their key business challenges and goals. So how do you address that? That's what you want to be talking about. I give an example. Recently, I met with top exec at a very large company. It was a $20 billion plus account and was invited in to talk about AI. Come talk to us about AI, what you're doing, where that future is going. Great. But instead, 
first started asking about his goals, his priorities, what he's trying to achieve. What do you want to do with the company? Okay. What's holding you back from being able to do those? We walk through that. Okay. Here's how you could do that. Here are some best practices, some guidances that we see. Here's how we've built a platform to be able to solve some of those challenges, how you could do even more. And he stopped at the end and he said, this has been fantastic. He's like, this is way more powerful than I expected in the conversation. I asked you to come in and talk about AI and you didn't first just start talking about AI. You actually talked about my business need and how to solve that problem for you. And we just talked all about that. Now in that storyline, you showed me how AI is that key capability that Gong was built on to enable me to solve that business problem. So now I see it, but you took a customer centric approach first, not an AI technology approach first. So if focus on that business need, that's what's really speaking to the hearts and minds of the people we want to work with. Helpful to hear you resequence sort of problem than AI as opposed to AI as the panacea for all of our problems. And let's just lob AI at whatever is inconveniencing or troubling us. You mentioned something about sort of the various phases we've been in where we've heard AI before, but perhaps more than ever in the history of technology, are we finding that it's actually holding water? Craig, is that just because what we knew AI to be historically as compared to what is now coming out of generative models, it just pales in comparison to reliability or credibility or efficacy, all the above. Like, I guess why AI now versus AI five, 10 years ago when we started even hearing about that? Yeah. You hit upon it. There are different phases and types of AI, right? Prior to this, we were doing a lot with machine learning, right? And there were innovations there that were, were pushing the curve. Generative AI is the more recent aspect that has really taken the world by storm. Mm -hmm. That will continue to grow again. And we're in the early innings of that. And there will be additional things. So that continues to, to grow and expand. The key interesting insight is how do we apply that to what we're doing as a company or how what we're doing as a revenue organization mm -hmm. to help us win in the market? What, how do we utilize that? So certainly there's the technical capability and being able to leverage that. The rapid pace of innovation is opening up all of these new capabilities for companies that you can build into either your product directly or into your processes within your revenue organization or throughout your company. So it can transform and really magnify all these different aspects you're doing. You can build those in over time. The key though, comes back to how are you using that to address and speak to the customer needs and opportunities that they have. That's what they care about. So if you focus on solving the business problem, that gets you to the value that actually makes you the leader in the market. So. It's that impact of the, the business value that actually wins in the markets. The technical capabilities are there. And for those in the tech space directly, you need to keep ratcheting up those, the level of investment expertise acumen needed to be a leader with AI capabilities is going up and up and up. That's certainly true for the, the platforms where you're seeing some of the largest companies lead in those investments, but it's true for any of the leaders in these space. A key lesson point here is that all AI is not created equal. There are differences in 
the accuracy and the efficacy, there are differences in the accuracy and efficacy of the AI that's out there. Give you an analogy that we had before. Think about, remember when there was a big boom of all those AI-based chatbot assistants, when that became a few, big thing a few years ago? Yeah, absolutely. Right? And hey, AI chat assistants, like they're going to be able to pop up and solve all your problems. They're going to handle all of customer success. Right? We won't even need customer support people or call centers, right? Do you remember that big wave? Oh, I remember feeling really frustrated and pissed off that it sucked. That's how I sort of <laughs> characterized that chapter. Exactly. Exactly. That was, that was the, the promise and it was there. In reality, some were good and some were focused and tangible and relevant and they could actually yeah. get the job done for you. Some were not. They weren't intelligent enough to actually be useful and it became this super frustrating, maddening, maddening experience. What is it? What does it go back to? Two key things you have to have with AI is one, the size of the data set that you have and the relevancy of that data matters a lot. What you're training it on has a big difference, right? In the revenue space, those revenue interactions are the most relevant, discernible and accurate aspects of data to be building out. So size and relevancy of the, the data matters. And then the expertise that you're able to apply to that, to utilize that data, to draw relevant insights and actions that actually get to solving the business problem become key. So how are you able to utilize that? Again, you're trying to just take available tech and you're applying it to solving an actual business problem. This is also helpful for all of all of us as companies out there or individuals in revenue organizations. As we're thinking about, say, discussing and selling our product, which may have AI components into it, or maybe utilizing AI processes, right? Again, people aren't looking to buy AI per se. They're looking to solve the problem that they have. They're looking to solve that need. You show them how you do that. In the background, you're building up the product, the capabilities, the processes through that AI expertise and advantage that you have, but speak to the value that they care about. That's what they're looking for. As we think about not all AI is created equal and not just blindly thinking, I need to have an answer to what our AI strategy is. So we're just going to flippantly and recklessly do something with AI, but continuing to anchor first to a business problem or a customer need, and then gauging after we've isolated what that is. Well, how can AI supplement human efforts? Really great perspective. A, a trend that we're hearing a lot from the RevOps leaders that we bring onto this podcast, and this won't come as a surprise to our listeners, we need to consolidate as a byproduct of having been incredibly gluttonous with all of the things that we accumulated in our tech stack during COVID, whether that was a reaction from panic or surplus funds, whatever it may be, there is huge focus right now on consolidating. And again, back to my point, we want to leave our listeners with a tactical game plan for how the hell to consolidate effectively. I'm bombarded by signals in my in-mail, in my inbox, everywhere. Here's where I can yield efficiencies due to excess in my tech stack. Craig, talk to us about the best, most effective ways to consolidate because I have to think people are bumbling their way through it and stepping on landmines along the way. Yeah, I think that's exa exactly an astute point. So people are looking to consolidate, right? We hear that a lot from customers. And what you typically hear people talk about is, I want to streamline my operations. I want to simplify things for my sellers or others in my company. I maybe need to reduce that overall 
tech stack costs, yeah. right? I want to consolidate there. The other side of that coin, which is even more powerful than that, is to get more business impact out of that tech stack, out of all those systems you're using. A big part of that can have, can be having the insights and actions flowing more cohesively, seamlessly throughout all those different products that you're using in your tech stack. That's a big advantage of consolidation that yields even greater results. So have the insights and actionability flowing throughout all of those key functions, getting more value and capabilities out of what you're using. That's a huge benefit of consolidation and that really drives the biggest impact. So then you start thinking about it that way. Okay, I'm looking for that biggest business impact. That's the goal I want to get to. I'm going to consolidate on something. I'm going to pick a long-term partner or partners. I'm going to consolidate an arc toward that vision that I want to get to. The key question then becomes, what do you consolidate on? And that's the thoughtful point to really drill into because consolidation is not just consolidation for its own sake. You're going to build out and consolidate on something two to three years from now, and it's going to have big implications on your capabilities and whether or not those are capped out or whether or not you've still got amazing room to grow and the long-term partner growing. So really focus on what you consolidate on. And there, it's a deeper conversation, but I'd say one key learning across all of these different companies is don't just focus on the products or use cases up top, where you may hear lots of vendors talking about different things and they may sound similar or overlapping, but really look at okay, but what's driving the value of those products and use cases? It really gets to what's it all built on? All those products and use cases that I'm trying to hit, what's the data and the understanding underlying that that's driving that value? Because if the data and understanding is not right, then all of those products and use cases are going to be off. The coaching recommendations that were given to managers are going to be off. Deal execution, risk warnings, highlights, key next steps are going to be off, or we're not going to know what to guide people toward as those next best actions if we don't know what that playbook for success looks like. So as you go through time and time again, it ties back to what's it all built on? What's that data and understanding? So it's a great place to look at and be very thoughtful about as you're thinking about what do I consolidate on? Okay, let me look at what's it built on. And that helps inform your thoughts about which platforms to build on. Amazing. Any other trends as someone who sits within strategy, who sat again on the investment side, who is now helping devise strategy internally at Gunk and also advising externally to Gunk's customers, how they should strategically weather through this downturn market. Anything else that you want to leave our listeners with Craig before we wrap? Hey, a couple of things that we can, we can touch upon. One is in this changing environment, the market has changed, customers have changed, right? What customers care about has changed. How they're talking about their needs, their priorities has changed. Their decision-making process has changed. Who's influencing or driving those decisions? All of these aspects in our markets have changed. So think about, are you crystal clear on how those aspects of your customer have changed and how you can adapt to those? There's a big discernment aspect of learning what those needs are and then how do I adapt and optimize my revenue organization to be able to go and, and hit those. That becomes a key imperative in a changing market environment. In, for sales organizations overall, 
three key best practices or three essential requirements I would point to. Mm-hmm. You need to be able to adapt to a changing market environment or in general, just to be able to optimize and get that overall business impact for your revenue organization that we were talking about at the beginning. One, you need to have the data and the visibility into really what's going on, right? That's key. Second, you've got to be able to deeply understand that data. What's happening in the interactions? What's happening in all of those key signals? That depth of understanding becomes a significant difference in the capabilities of different things that you may be using today or thinking about using. And then three, how do you deliver out of all of that, the insights and the actions directly to your users who need to know it in their daily workflows, in their action items right there? Again, they care about, say, if it's a seller or a manager, how do I move this deal forward? What's going to influence my win rate, my success rate here? What's the key next step that I need to be able to do? How do I get to success there? They're not looking for data. They're looking for insights and actions. Tell me what to do next so I can be more successful in moving this forward. That's true in sales and revenue organizations. It's true across companies. So you keep that framework in mind. That's a great way to build and then think about, okay, what more can I do for my organization? And I'd say a key consideration for leaders to think about is where am I going with the capabilities that I will need for my organization, not just this year, but the next year and the year after that, what am I building for? And what it really gets you to do is to think ahead about what those needs are for the organization, the company, the company goals that you want to become, that you want to hit. And what it means is there's a lot of additional risk. If you think you're settling for just okay products and technology today, just okay processes today, because there may be some cost and some loss to doing those things today at a lesser level, using a good enough solution or a process that's kind of working, you're getting some value out of it. That gap becomes immensely wider as you start looking one, two, three years out to where you want to go. And it's not going to get you there, but guaranteed your competitors are probably looking at how they can arc toward those same type of goals. So the chasm between where you're at in capabilities that you've built up in your revenue organization and your technology and systems becomes wider and wider and good enough isn't good enough today. It's not even close to where you need to get to in the future. So really be thinking ahead about where you want to build to. It gets back to exactly your good question on, okay, what do I consolidate on? What do I build on? How, how should I think about getting there? Craig, just extending our awareness for what is beyond the two inches in front of our nose, even going back to one of your answers early in the episode, how do I find myself in a strategic role? Obviously master what's in front of you and then curiously explore what looms beyond your immediate surroundings. And I think that is a really nice way to tie back even just your last answer. Great. Consider really, are you consolidating on the wrong thing? Or are you actually going to slow down to understand and assess, consolidate on the things that are going to yield your short-term, but also not pigeonhole you into your short-term success, but set you up for longer-term possibilities as well. Unbelievable perspective as we think yeah. about how to you know, ensure our survival now and well to the future. 
coming from someone who's been both inside and outside the four walls of an organization and seen, certainly from an investor standpoint, what it's going to take to prevail in the long term. Craig, if you've listened to Reveal, then you know what is surely going to yeah. be the last question we'll be asking because we ask all of our guests this final question. Craig, if you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? I'd use the word learning that encompasses a lot of different aspects. It's learning, discerning, understanding where the customer or prospect that you're working with is coming from. What are their needs and priorities? So it arcs back to a lot of the things that we talked about earlier. It's not just about pushing your particular product or solution. But if we generally understand and learn from the people that we want to sell to, the people we want to work with, the markets that we're adapting in, then we're starting to take a more customer-centric approach to framing things, helping them, helping educate them, helping them get to their goals and priorities. You know, we're taking it from a customer-centric approach, not a vendor-centric approach. We can just be about pushing harder or pushing more or doing it again. Yes, we all have to do those things to make it through, but learn and absorb that. And then you can build in the strategy that you talked about earlier about how do I solve that customer need? How do I help them get to a better way to get to the opportunities that are available to them? So Greg, it's my understanding that you, as part of your role, you interface oftentimes with customers and in particular, right, since you sit within the greater RevOps org, you're advising revenue operations peers of yours on what best practices look like in 2023 as we're filming this episode. Talk to us a little bit about what you're telling them because, you know, I think people look to someone like you with your pedigree and years of experience and think there's a thought leader. Well, talk to us as if we were a fly on the wall in that room with a RevOps peer. What are you advising them on? I think the capabilities that we have available to us as RevOps enablement teams, as sales execs, and other leaders has grown so exponentially just within the last three, four years okay. that it's really transformed the capabilities of what a best in class RevOps and enablement team can do in these organizations. And I'll give you a sense. You and I know this day to day from what we do at Gong and how we built up things, but you're able to extend how we're able to measure and drive the impact of the company's most key priorities. Those can't fail initiatives, right? That the exec level, the board level can't see dropped. Typically what we'd be able to do is, right? We can implement the programs. We implement the trainings, the enablements. We can measure actually the content and the satisfaction with that content. That's a core piece. And most teams will do that. But we've built out, and now with the technology, with those AI-driven capabilities we've been talking about, things you can do, now you can start to really see how is it being adopted by my team? Where is it being adopted? Where is it not? What are the weak points that I need to reinforce? What things are being adopted out of, say, the new messaging or the new sales process or the new key initiative that we've launched? What's not being adopted for it? So now we're able to see very granularly exactly where that's getting good internal adoption as that manifests itself in the conversations that we're having with our prospects and customers. We're even able to go further than that. Now we're able to see how are customers and prospects reacting to that? 
what's working well, what's not, what's landing, what different permutations or ideas can we go back and reinforce? And we'll see different ideas on, hey, actually, this particular derivation of that is working really well. Or somebody's hit upon that. And we can tie that to data and loop it back to our sellers and those in our trainings to show them that impact. And then we're able to take it to that final step of measuring full impact. So tie that to the results that we want to care about. Sure, win rates, but also conversion rates along the way. All of the efficacy stages and gates that we want to get to. What we get to then, if you step back, is now we've been able to architect a full connection, fully connected process that shows from what we're doing to how it's being adopted internally, to how it's resonating externally, to the impact that we're getting from it. We can finally tie the full ROI of all of those key initiatives that we're launching as a company at the exec level. You can tie that end to end. Those are the capabilities available to us now through technology with that data-driven approach. And who's at the center of that? It's RevOps and enablement that is making that happen. And I think has transformed the role of RevOps and enablement in companies and really opened up a seat at the table at the exec level, at the board level for the knowledge insights that RevOps and enablement has. It transforms what we can do as leaders in these areas. And importantly, for all of us, it makes those strategic initiatives much more likely to succeed. McKinsey came out with a statistic that said 70% of strategic initiatives fail, as you and I know it, have seen in our research. This helps them, those initiatives, this helps those initiatives be more likely to succeed because you're getting leading indicators along the way. You're not relying on lagging indicators for those end results. As a result, we can make changes and iterate and improve. We can course correct along the way to change the outcome. That just transforms the way that we're able to operate, not only as RevOps enablement teams, but as revenue organizations overall and as executive teams. That's a pretty cool best practice that we can all start building into where we're arcing toward as companies and the capabilities that we can unleash. Well, Craig, I think that point for me personally, because where I said in enablement, where I'm thinking is to be able, as you phrased it, to tie it all together. Enablement has, as I've said before in other episodes, we have been stigmatized or characterized, vilified as this, I don't know, those who can't do teach cost center that is just an absolute pit of resources that don't ever feel any shred of accountability for how we spend our time, how we spend our seller's time. And we're just given a blank check to go execute willy-nilly on training exercises. And you, by contrast, have really fortified this continuum where, for certainly selfishly our own sake, it's great to be able to now, in your real-time, point to what is the efficacy of our investments. But if you're a sales leader listening, now you can actually hold your enablement counterparts accountable. So when they're rolling out these must-win, cannot-fail initiatives, you can now, thanks to the advancements in technology that Craig's alluded to, you can gauge, well, were our instincts right? But more importantly, is our enablement team doing the right sustain and reinforcement efforts to ensure that this is not a failed initiative? Not because, again, the IP behind the initiative or the instincts were wrong, but because it's an execution problem. Or alternatively, no, the sustain and reinforcement efforts are all there but it's failing because in fact, the content itself isn't resonating internally or externally. Either way, to be able for the first time to have everyone as part 
of this arbitration that is objective and data-driven, it keeps everyone honest, but it also gives everyone more equal footing. So thanks so much for explaining that because why is it important? Why should we give a shit about this? It ushers in an entirely new paradigm where we can all succeed in a more objective, credible way. So Craig, really like that answer. Absolutely. And great partnering with you day to day. We see that we've, we've built it up internally in our organization. And as you know, I've been out there with those and our other team and leaders. We're happy to share those ideas and best practices and collaborate with others in our, in our peer group. Well, I cannot think of a more fitting way to close out an episode with David Amber. I mean, the professor Craig Hansen. When we talk about learning, clearly you typify Craig, what is an insatiable curiosity, as we alluded to before, whether that's your own immediate function or what looms beyond your immediate surroundings. It has been an absolute delight getting to democratize all of your experience, Craig, to our Reveal audience, which amounts to 33,000 unique monthly listeners that are all going to be adopting right. your approach moving forward. So to close out, we've got the Senior Director of Go-To-Market Enablement Strategy and Operations, or more casually, the doctor himself of Gung's Go-To-Market market strategy, the man himself, Craig Hansen. It has been a real treat getting to chat with you, my friend. I will look forward to the next time we can break bread over breakfast in a city near you. Thanks so much, my friend. I love it. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performance sales teams, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, come on, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may listen.